Hello and welcome to CSDS Asia Matters, hosted today by me, Bill Hayton, an Associate Fellow with the Asia-Pacific Programme at the London-based think tank Chatham House. Asia Matters is brought to you in partnership with the Brussels School of Governance. Now, at the very end of June, the Philippines will formally inaugurate a new leadership, but it will feature two very familiar names. There will be a second, President Ferdinand Marcos, and another Duterte, Sara, daughter of the current president, will become vice president. The new President Marcos, generally known as Bongbong, is the son of the man who led the Philippines from the time he was elected in 1965 until the time he was deposed by a people power revolution in 1986. During the two decades in between, Marcos Sr. amassed billions of dollars in private wealth, oversaw the killing and disappearance of thousands of political opponents, imposed martial law, and created a debt-fueled economic boom, which ended in a major recession. Sarah Duterte is the daughter of a man who has polarized the Philippines during the past six years, the current president, Rodrigo Duterte. His signature policy was a war on drugs, which has caused the deaths of somewhere between six and 30,000 people. Yet despite these checkered family backgrounds, both Bongbong Marcos and Sarah Duterte were elected with huge majorities in the elections on May the 9th. Each took well over half the vote, something that hasn't happened in a Philippine leadership election since the end of martial law. Today, we're going to find out how they did it and what it means for the Philippines. I'm joined by two experts who closely follow the country's politics and public opinion. Ronald, or Ronnie Holmes, is president of Pulse Asia, one of the Philippines' leading public opinion research companies, and is also professor of politics at De La Salle University in Manila. Maria Ella Atienza is professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of the Philippines, up the road in Diliman. Welcome to you both. Ronnie, I'm going to begin by congratulating you. About a week before the election, Pulse Asia published an opinion poll that got the future results of the elections pretty much right. So tell me, who voted for Bongwell Marcos and why? Well, if we base it on the last survey that we conducted, and that was a survey that was done sometime in the middle of April, we will see that the votes for Bongbong Marcos cuts across all socioeconomic classes. And essentially, he topped the race in all but two of the regions that were claimed by the second running contender, the Vice President Lenny Robredo. So it's across all areas, across all regions, across all age groups, regardless of educational attainment and the working status. It was Bongbong Marcos that was garnering, if not plurality, a high plurality support, majority support. So it wasn't the case, let's say, in the, uh, the Trump elections or the Brexit vote here in the UK, that you had a sort of metropolitan elite versus a sort of popular mass? It was not, Bill. Uh, what we saw here would be, well, some of the votes fell within ethno-linguistic lines, which means that, for example, in the case of Vice President Lenny Robredo, she did well among those who voted in her own region. This is Bicol. But aside from that, we don't see any divergence in terms of, let's say, urban or rural. They dominantly went for Bombo Marcos. Uh, so you don't see the same divide that you saw, let's say, in Brexit or in the U.S. elections in 2016. That's really interesting because one of the things that people thought was, for example, that 
less educated people, people who didn't know so much about the past and the history of the Marcos family might be more inclined to vote for him, whereas more educated people might not. But you don't, you didn't find that. Actually, it's the opposite that we established in the survey that we conducted in April. The less educated people had lesser support for Mr. Marcos compared to the more educated people. So people who claim that they finished college, for example, had marginally higher support for Mr. Marcos compared to those who only reached, let's say, finished grade school. That's interesting. One thing I noticed looking at your figures was that a lot of those people also preferred Manny Pacquiao, the former boxer, that maybe he had more reach among, among that group. Uh, it's not statistically significant. We saw Manny Pacquiao doing better in the region that he came from. Again, this is something that is along the ethno-linguistic or geographical support. There were certain candidates, aside from Bongbong and Vice President Lenny, that did well in their areas. That's Manny Pacquiao one. And the other one, in a province that he came from, one of the candidates, Faisal Mangundato, who did well in the province of Lano del Sur, which is his home province. So you see, there were certain bailiwicks that really delivered for some candidates. But generally, it was Bongbong Marcos that led all contenders across all areas and social demographic groups. One thing, again, looking at your data, is that I noticed that a lot of young people, more than average, voted for Bongbong Marcos. The 18 to 24-year-olds, they seem to be particularly keen on him. Yeah, and again, this is uh, something that is perplexing because people were expecting that the younger age groups, uh, 18 to 24, would tend to go more for the vice president, given the fact that we saw more young people attending the rallies that were organized by the vice president. But the survey data consistently shows that the 18 to 24 tend to vote more for Bombo Marcos than the baby boomers, for that matter. Uh, our age group, for example, you see a marginally lower support for Bombong, and the ones who are 65 and up, less than majority of them actually pulled support for Bombo Marcos, although Marcos still got about 47% from the 65 and up age group. Ella, maybe I could bring you in here. Ronnie mentioned uh, the current vice president's campaign, Lenny Robredo. She was standing for the presidential position. Now, from outside, it looked like she was a great candidate. She had a great personal story. Uh, She seemed to have some very sound policies. And yet she only received just over a quarter of the vote. How would you explain that? Uh, Well, of course, uh, when she won as vice president, she was um, the highest ranking uh, opposition in the Duterte administration. And from the very first day, she was attacked by a lot of groups, attacked by supporters of President Duterte. And of course, uh, Bongbong Marcos, for a large part of the six years of the administration, questioned the legality of the election of Robredo as vice president. Eventually, the Supreme Court declared that the winner for the vice president is VP Robredo. And um, then her office was given a very small budget, which um, her office uh, was able to use for livelihood programs and development assistance, particularly during calamities for many areas in the Philippines. But because of limited budget, the office was not really able to really promote publicly or use public relations to promote the activities of the office of the vice president. She was also 
relentlessly attacked through disinformation campaigns uh, through social media. There were a lot of documented attacks uh, attacking her personal life, attacking her background, even um, her programs. Uh, she was heavily victimized by a lot of disinformation online. The strange thing about the Philippines election is that the president and the vice president are elected as two separate um, yes. campaigns, aren't they? So you can have politicians from two exactly opposing parties elected to the presidency and the vice presidency. Yes, that's true. And if you came from uh, two different parties, the tendency is the president will tend to, uh, or the supporters of the president will tend to sideline the vice president because they think that the vice president may have plans to run for president. So in the case of Vice President Lenny Robredo, and she admitted this, uh, perhaps the problem of her team was they did not really attack head on the disinformation being spread about her. The fact checking came in later. So it was already too late to uh, stop the spread of uh, lies about herself. Do you think that was the most important factor in this election, this use of social media and, and information campaigns? Uh, that, that is one, uh, one particular factor. But at the same time, uh, Vice President Lenny Robredo was associated with the Liberal Party, the party of the former president, Benigno Aquino Jr. And the Liberal Party was also heavily attacked by disinformation and supporters of President Duterte and also the supporters of Bongbong Marcos. So that's why the, the term Dilawan, yellow is the color of the Liberal Party. It's the color associated with Ninoy Aquino, the father of former President uh, Benigno Aquino. And the Liberal Party was attacked uh, relentlessly since uh, Duterte came to power and she became the face of the Liberal Party and the failure to initiate changes in the Philippines. We can also say that uh, since 1986, while we were able to establish a lot of uh, democratic institutions and practices, inequality and class relations remain unequal. So the political system is still inaccessible to a lot of people. There is economic development, but we have a large number of poor people that are easily exploited by the political class, particularly traditional politicians. And this led to a lot of dissatisfaction about the democratic structure that was established after 1986. People who were dissatisfied were easily um, exploited and many of them also were easy prey to the allure of authoritarianism and strongman rule. The idea that a strongman would be able to kind of cut through a lot of the inefficiency and inequality and, and get things done. Yeah, and that's the reason why in 2016, Rodrigo Duterte was uh, elected as president because he promised to address the problem of drugs and at the same time rising criminality in the Philippines. And if I'm not mistaken, wasn't uh, Mr. Marcos Sr. elected back in 1965 with a similar promise that he was going to be the strong man who was going to take on the, the old conservative forces and, and modernize the country? Yeah, he promised uh, economic development. And at the same time, he said when he declared martial law, he said that he's saving the country from the communist insurgency. Right. Thank you. Now, Ronnie, perhaps do you have any insight from your polling 
about the role that social media and uh, what we've called disinformation here played in the campaign? Well, our survey showed that 7 out of 10 Filipinos have access to the internet. All of these Filipinos have Facebook accounts. About 2 out of 3 who have access to the internet are on YouTube. And more than half of those who have access to the internet actually follow news about the elections through the internet, through social media. So that means you basically have about 35% of the voting population accessing news information about the elections, about the candidates from social media. And that to me, Bill, is quite a large proportion of the voting population who might be influenced by disinformation that you see or malinformation, attacks against certain candidates that you find proliferating in all of the social media platforms. We did not ask the voters how it influenced them, but we did find out that many of them actually belong also to groups that discuss politics in social media. But the most important thing really is that half of those who access the internet basically use social media, gather information about the elections through the internet in different social media platforms. And of course, we won't know exactly what these people are looking at and what kind of information they're receiving. It's not like we can sort of monitor the television stations and decide whether they're biased or not. This is all happening below the radar. It will depend, really. It's pretty difficult because, for example, when you talk about the internet, access to the internet and use to the internet, that will include mainstream media because many of our mainstream media networks have gone digital. Both radio and television networks have gone digital. They also have their news online, live streaming at the same time as it's being broadcast on TV or on radio. So we don't know essentially what specific platform, what channel in YouTube they're looking at. That will require us really to ask YouTube in terms of the size, uh, the viewership of a number of these YouTube channels. We see the numbers in terms of number of subscribers, but we don't know exactly at what point within the day do they really follow or monitor the news on YouTube because some of the programs are not necessarily about news. Does your polling or your research give you any insight into what people thought they were voting for when they were voting for the two presidential candidates? We saw in our polls, and we reported this out in an article together with some other colleagues in the Washington Post, we saw that you have a majority saying that they have a more positive impression about the late dictator, Ferdinand Marcos. So this means that to a certain extent, it's true. The counter-narrative, the historical distortion, the denialism that some say, scholars have pointed out, have been going on for about 10 years, have definitely netted this result wherein you know, you've got a late dictator essentially rehabilitated from the perspective of a majority of Filipinos. And then you have his son also, who's completely rebranded this is based on survey results. That's interesting. I mean, something I, I saw about the coverage of the campaign, but maybe Ella, I could ask you this question, is that Bongbong Marcos, the, the son, basically didn't say anything about his policies during the election campaign. Is that right? Yeah, that's true, because he did not join any of the debates, even the debates sponsored by the Commission on Elections. He also refused to be interviewed by uh, mainstream uh, media stations. He selected 
uh, a number of media people who can only interview him in one particular station, which is from the very beginning a uh, supporter of the Marcos Duterte team. He also did not issue any specific or detailed program of government. So he kept saying that the Marcos-Duterte tandem will uh, bring more unity to the Philippines and we will recover from COVID. But beyond that, he has not really discussed very specific policies related to the economy, foreign policy, and the political system. So it's like some observers noted that he seemed to be promoting toxic positivity, but at the same time, he refused to be interviewed by media. There's a big phalanx of bodyguards guarding him from uh, journalists asking uh, questions. And at the same time, he spoke through spokespersons. Uh, there's a particular uh, spokesperson assigned to him. That's the same strategy followed by uh, Sara Duterte. She spoke through a chosen spokesperson. And they did not participate in any of the debates. Yeah, I love that phrase, toxic positivity. Can you, maybe you could unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, because they keep saying that it's time to move forward and heal the divides that separate the, the Philippines. And they keep saying that uh, when they win, there will no longer be colors among many Filipinos. We will all be Filipinos. But at the same time, we see how on social media, we see the trolls and the bloggers that are pro Bongbong Marcos and pro Sara Duterte attacking the other candidates, particularly Vice President Lenny Robredo. So on the surface, they, they present a positive United Philippines that will move forward and recover from the pandemic. But at the same time, they're not providing details. But presumably, I mean, the Vice President Lenny Robredo could have said the same thing. She could have talked about bringing unity and recovering from COVID. So why would her message not get through, whereas the Duterte-Marcos message did get through? I think one uh, very important aspect in the Marcos-Duterte campaign was that they kept repeating the songs and the programs associated with the father. They were not really talking about what the son will do. Basically, it's bringing back what they consider the, the rebranded golden years of the Philippines under Marcos. And of course, on the part of Sara Duterte, continuity of build, build, build infrastructure programs and the war on drugs of President Duterte. In the case of Vice President Lenny Robredo, her team was able to develop a very detailed program on many areas, particularly COVID recovery and at the same time also economic uh, recovery. But at the same time, it was very difficult to put across these very detailed programs to uh, a lot of people. Probably it's because she ran as an independent. There was no machinery or a lot of resources supporting her. So basically, you have volunteers creating different uh, campaign jingles for her. So it was a very creative campaign. But there were actually mixed messages because there were so many advertisements, so many songs 
associated with her campaign. It was only later that they were able to focus on, they call it angat buhay, which is meaning uh, bringing everyone up together. That's also the program, uh, the livelihood program of the vice president. So I think towards the end, they were able to get more support because uh, that connects with the daily lives of the people. But at the beginning, they had a lot of difficulty really connecting with the people on the ground. And Ronnie, anything that you might add about why Lenny Robredo was unable to get her message through uh, compared to the others? Well, one factor that the camp of the vice president failed to take notice of would be whether the issue of reform or good governance would resonate to the public at this point in time. It did help in the campaign of former President Benigno Aquino III, because at that time the issue was really prevalent corruption, alleged corruption under his predecessor, Gloria Macapagal Arroyo. In the 2022 elections, however, the vice president was not up against anyone that was formally anointed by the incumbent president. The incumbent president still enjoyed significant majority support. So the message of uh, good governance is not something that would really connect as much given that you know the public, for whatever reason, did not feel that the government has in any way been deficient under Rodrigo Duterte. She was up against someone, on the other hand, that was continually repeating the message that the nation will recover, that the nation will rise up again. And as Ella uh, said, as one of our colleagues in the discipline labeled it, it's toxic positivity. Toxic in the sense that it is repeated. It's the only message repeated in the campaign rallies. Bombo Marcos also, I, I, I've seen the websites of basically all the candidates. Bombo Marcos, despite the fact that he does not articulate his platform in the campaign rallies and just keeps on talking about unity, if you look at his YouTube channel, he has specific videos there that cater to segments. For example, he talks about his plans for the youth, which includes areas such as climate change, which also the vice president takes on. So I think it was deliberate on their part to just keep on repeating the same message in their barnstorming and then leave the platform in their social media channels. And in that regard, they basically were walking on two legs, doing the barnstorming or the campaign rallies and making use effectively of social media to disseminate their plans and on the part of their supporters, as it has been shown in some studies, to disseminate this information. So could we kind of sum up the appeal of both Bongbong Marcus and, and Sara Duterte as kind of trust us, leave it to us, we'll get things done, but really no more detail than that? Well, to a certain extent, I would say it would be partly that bill. But another point that I'd raise is that the combination, the tandem of Bombong Marcos and Salad Duterte basically brings together North and South, which altogether constitute about close to, what, 40% of the total voting population. They didn't get all of that 40%, but that gave them a headway, an advantage. And if they got more support from the other areas, that will make it very difficult for any of the other contenders to catch up. So if, I'm, if I understand you correctly, the Marcos family comes from the northern part of the island of Luzon, whereas Duterte's mm. power base is down in the south in, in Mindanao. Yeah. And basically, 
people vote for for their for their local politicians or, yeah. or does it, is it is it deeper than that is it about families and traditional power structures uh, it 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 would be yeah it would be along ethno-linguistic lines the north would constitute about eight percent of the total voting population mindanao would be about 24 percent then you count central visayas and some provinces in eastern visayas altogether my our estimates that that constitutes 40 percent if you grab about 60-70% of that, that's already quite a significant proportion of the voting population that gives you basically your base. And from that base, Bombo Marcos and Salo Duterte were able to attract more support given all of the other strategies that they adopted, including the unity message and the message that the nation will recover again. Ella, what do you think this pattern of voting tells us about the nature of Philippines politics and and more deeply about Philippine society. We see here also the dominance of the traditional political families and the political elites. Many of them were on top of a lot of the provinces around the Philippines and many of them through their support behind the Bongbong Marcos and Sara Duterte. So we still see here the triumph of money politics. Um, many local politicians who belong to traditional uh, political families really spent quite a lot in uh, making sure that their constituents will vote for Bongbong Marcos and Sara Duterte. Even if many of these politicians belong to different political parties, because in the Philippines, our political parties are just used as machineries, but we don't have very strong political parties. Politicians can uh, simply go to another party and run in another party. So it's more of the combination or alliances of local elites supporting the Bongbong Marcos and Sara Duterte tandem and uh, promoting them and making sure that their constituents uh, will vote for them. So we seem to have a paradox here where these candidates ran on the basis that they were going to change society, but the only way they could win was by relying on the existing powerful forces in society. So presumably they don't want to change that much. Yeah, yes, that, that, that's the paradox because they keep uh, saying Bagong Pilipinas or New Philippines, but there's really nothing new because you have two children of presidents and at the same time also you have the traditional political families behind them, supporting them. So it's really bringing back or actually retaining the traditional structure of politics and bringing back the memories because they keep playing the songs associated with the, the Marcos martial law administration. And, and Ronnie, would you agree that that paradox exists? Yeah, it's essentially an electoral system that is on the balance in favor of maintaining the status quo. And it's a status quo wherein there's a lot of compromise involving your dominant political families. It's been studied well by political scientists in the country. Across the years, there are more political families that they control of elective positions. And their survival really depends on, you know, compromises and coalitions among them. So Bombo Marcos may have won with majority support, but eventually he will have to settle and come into coalitions with all of these political families if he wishes to push through in some of the things that he would be planning. That's essentially the reality of Philippine politics. Because he has to get legislation uh, well, through the Senate and everything and, and do deals as, with these people. As, uh, yeah, as I, all, as I mentioned in the past, basically the president is patron-in-chief. He dispenses patronage to everyone else. 
But below him, there are also politicians who are obliged to distribute patronage to their subordinates at the subnational level. So it's a vicious uh, uh, arrangement. It's a network of patronage that definitely doesn't bode well for a country that should actually recover. We might see more expenditures. We might see more debts on the part of the Philippines. Debt to GDP ratio is already increasing. And with the promises that Bombo Marcos articulated in many of the platforms that you find in his YouTube channel, it means really larger expenditures. Um, right. He's, he's made so many promises in spending that he's going to have to borrow in order to fund them. Is that, that's what you're saying. And, and then how to sustain a coalition with politicians down to the local level who would be asking not just for crumbs, but really for more resources to be able to at least sustain themselves in positions. Because our election cycle is every three years, at least for many of these politicians, except for the president and the members of the Senate. Let's now, let's turn uh, our our view to the future. I know we've been saying that the candidates didn't give us much of an idea about what their programs were, but what do you think it's going to mean? I mean, for example, Mr. Duchete's signature policy was was the war on drugs. Do you see Mr. Marcos uh, carrying the same policy forward or is there going to be a change there? He did say that he will uh, continue that particular uh, policy of President Duterte, but he also promised that he will uh, continue the heavy infrastructure building project. President Duterte calls it build, build, build. So Bongbong Marcos said that he will continue this building of bridges, roads, and railways. So this will likely entail a lot of public spending and uh, might uh, lead to more borrowing. But also, I presume that'll require investment and jobs and employment and, and that, sort of, that sort of thing. So you could see it maybe the beginning of a recovery. Well, is, is that a good way to look at it? the problem is uh, right now, uh, his economic team is still a question. According to his spokesperson, they are still trying to recruit his economic team. So it seems like they are taking a long time to... Uh, convince people to join the team. Around this time in 2016, President Duterte already had an economic team and they were already laying down the details of the economic plan. So right now, there is still no detailed economic plan in terms of uh, recovery. So we can't say, for example, that there's a kind of economic ideology here. We can't say that Bongbong Marcos will be a Keynesian or that he's going to cut public spending or that he's going to raise taxes. or We, we don't have any, any real details on any of this. In terms of some of the people that they approach as possible heads of the economic agencies, many of them are still the same uh, neoliberal economists and uh, business person, but none of them has agreed to join the team yet. Okay, so there may be some continuity between Mr. Duterte's uh, government and and President Marcos's government, you think? Yes, probably. Moni, turning to you, what do you think we should look forward to in terms of policies coming out of the new administration? I think, Bill, there would not be that much of a change in terms of economic policies, because changing at this point in time would mean that you might repel investors from both within the country and outside investment that is critical in terms of delivering on the promises of more jobs. For example, one of the things that Bombo Marcos spoke of would be to make sure that the infrastructure that is needed for economic recovery would be set in place. 
And he spoke about two infrastructures. One would be energy generation, and the second one is digital infrastructure. That requires a lot of money, and I doubt whether government can spend on that. And for that matter, if you want to attract investors in those two areas, you will really have to get government out of the economy. So that's to me, basically suggest we may not expect any significant change in terms of the neoliberal policies that we've had over the past uh, three administrations or even four administrations for that matter. Right. And, and any other, do you think, sort of social policies or you know, policies towards uh, inequalities or, or regional questions? I think in terms of social policies, it will remain the same. We do have laws that institutionalize the conditional cash transfer. With regard to foreign policy, you've had Bombo Marcos stating to U.S. President Joe Biden that the Philippines will remain an ally of the United States. He did not respond in the same way to a statement that was delivered to him by the Chinese ambassador to the Philippines from Xi Jinping. I doubt whether there will be any significant shift. I think the worry of a number of people would be, what about you know, the record of crony capitalism under the Marcos regime? Will it come back? Maybe it would, as some of our colleagues in the discipline would say. Every administration in the Philippines definitely has clonies. You just hope that they would be able to regulate it and not to the extent that we saw it during the martial law regime. And, and on that, I mean, often the, the, the biggest constraint on abuses like that is, is the media and, and public scrutiny. And we know that Mr. Duterte has waged a campaign against critical media. Do you think that enough of the media institutions, but also maybe the other elements of government and civil society, are they strong enough at the moment to resist the kind of Marcos senior type policies, you know, when he, he really repressed that side of Philippine life? I'll be a little bit more optimistic. I'm normally a pessimist here, Bill. Uh, Ella would know it also. But I'm a little bit optimistic because, you know, we're at the point in time where we're, we're still essentially enjoying certain freedoms, although administrations have tried to curtail that. We saw a resurgence in terms of people you know, uh, volunteering and really coming out campaigning for a candidate. We know that this is a sufficient proportion of the population to push back. If you organize this group and you sustain the organization, I'm pretty sure that it would be difficult, even for a Marcos administration, to really silence either the media or the public. Again, this is optimistic on my part, and I hope it, become, it becomes I've never met a pessimistic Filipino, Ron, I'm a political scientist, and uh, I think that, that makes me a little bit more cynical. Right. Hello. Hello. Where do you yes. sit on this question? Uh, well, I, uh, as Ronnie said, uh, I'm also a political scientist. There are some... Uh, difficult times ahead, but I'm also an optimist. But definitely um, the campaign of uh, Lenny Robredo may not have ended in victory, but it did bring together a diverse group of Filipinos that are actually now becoming more aware of the need to organize and at the same time focus on good governance and livelihood and empowerment. So if this will continue even after the elections, after the defeat in the elections and uh, 
almost 15 million people who voted for her, if a large portion of this can transform into uh, groups that can monitor, focus on fact-checking and empowering the grassroots. They've been so effective in the last few months in doing house-to-house campaigns and engaging with people in uh, marginal communities and uh, marginalized sectors. So that can be the seed of an alternative, more inclusive Philippines that can possibly challenge the triumph of traditional politicians and money politics. There are, of course, things that we should really watch out for. That is the changing of our textbooks and our history. Sara Duterte has been appointed as secretary of the Department of Education. So there's really a need to watch for possibly changing the history books and whitewashing the martial law and the Duterte years in the textbooks. And at the same time, also protecting the media. And there's plenty of red tagging of a lot of the organizations in the Philippines. As long as uh, you consider yourself as an opposition, it's easy for government agencies and pro-Duterte and pro-Marcos supporters and bloggers to claim that these groups are pro-communists or sympathizers of uh, communists or the insurgents. Yes, that phrase red tagging is something that maybe people don't know outside the Philippines. It's basically a a way of sort of discrediting or or attacking somebody by accusing them of being connected to the the communist movement. Yeah, it's a resurrection of McCarthyism in the United States. Right, right. Now, Ronnie mentioned something about foreign policy there. Ella, I'm going to give you a chance. I mean, we know President Duterte had a real personal dislike of the United States, and that caused lots of problems. The new President Marcos I know he was educated in the UK, so maybe he'll be uh, very pro-British. I don't know about that. But uh, do you have any thoughts about how Philippine foreign policy will steer its way between the US and China? And I think that uh, there will not be um, significant changes in the foreign policy of the Philippines. Although, uh, of course, the Marcos family has hosted Chinese officials and the Chinese ambassador, Bongbong Marcos, has in a way committed to continuing the positive relationship with the United States, but things that can complicate that relationship may be the convictions of the Marcoses in U.S. courts and at the same time also issues related with human rights and the rule of law because the congratulatory message of President Biden focused on increasing cooperation in the area of human rights and the rule of law. So I think that's something to watch out for because in the case of President Duterte, the EU and the officials of the US have uh, often focused on the poor human rights record of the Philippines. So that might be an important uh, thing to look at. And of course, well, we cannot expect anymore that uh, President Duterte will be uh, investigated by the ICC, maybe One arrangement between the two families is that the outgoing president will be protected from any investigation of the ICC. The ICC, the International Criminal Court, that's for his uh, the allegations of crimes against humanity in the in the war on drugs. Yes, an issue which may run, or as you suggest, may be suppressed. Well, thank you both so much. That's been a really fascinating discussion about the elections and what we can look forward to in in the coming years. That's it for this week's uh, CSDS Asia Matters. My guests have been Ronnie Holmes, president of Pulse Asia, 
and Ella Atienza from the University of the Philippines. My name is Bill Hayton, and I'm with the Asia-Pacific Programme at Chatham House. This episode was edited by Vincent Nee and produced by Aaron Safia. To keep up to date with Asia Matters, please do subscribe to the podcast. You can find it on all major platforms. Asia Matters is brought to you in partnership with the Brussels School of Governance, and you can find our previous episodes on its website. Thanks for listening.